Amen. You guys may be seated. And we have been, and this morning is, uh, like many of the sermons over the course of this summer, is going to be a bit of a biblical survey, if you will. Over the last, uh, over the course of this summer, we've been going through our statement of faith, and we've been looking at the scripture, and then we've been turning and looking at how uh, our confession summarizes key doctrines in the Bible, and we are on our last two weeks, and so this morning, we're going to look at what is a church, is the question we're going to ask, we're going to look at what makes up a church. Uh, Next week, we're going to kind of look at uh, the eternal state, we're going to look at uh, some of what we examined in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, back in the spring, our own bodily resurrection, we're going to look at eternal judgment and things of that nature. And then I'm going to move us to a short four-week series where we kind of work through our philosophy, if you will, and hopefully, uh, even over the course of this summer, uh, hopefully the philosophy of the church has been evident um, as uh, just as it relates to how we function, uh, how we worship as a church. But I want to spend four weeks just being intentional about that. Uh, our theology really doesn't matter if we don't apply what it is that we believe. The way that we live, the way that we operate, the way that we function in society day in and day out, and the way that we come together in worship each Lord's Day as God's gathered church, that's our theology. And so uh, how we function uh, is uh, is the, the way that we can see what it is that we actually believe. And so if you want to know what you believe, look at how you behave, look at how you worship, look at how, uh, again, you live in society. And, um, and so this morning, uh, our confession, uh, we're looking at chapter 26, but I'm going to do, like I said, a biblical survey. And the question that I want to answer is, what is a church. And uh, Chris Morin graciously wrote our small group uh, questions and commentary for this week. And he said something in there that just struck me that I I think is significant as it relates to who we are, what we believe, and how we function. And he said that a Bible-believing church, which is what we should all want to be, a Bible-believing church, uh, is a Bible-doing church, right? A Bible-believing church is a bible doing church, and that should be our aim, Bible doing, which uh, means really to, to treasure Christ and to treasure all of Christ's word and all that he's commanded uh, for us to do. We should cherish it in our hearts and we should cherish it in our practice. And so this morning, like I said, we're going to look at the church and this sermon's going to have some overlap with the series that we're about to go into in a couple of weeks, which um, we're just calling kind of building the church. But by the end of this morning, my prayer is that we as a congregation can identify and articulate what constitutes the church and even distinguish between uh, the visible church and invisible church, some categories that I introduced earlier this year that we'll revisit. And as we've journeyed together over the course of this summer, and specifically over the last three weeks, I want to just point something out for you that's uh, that's worth noting. The, the reformers were intentional in how they formulated this confession. And over the last three weeks, the formulation follows three economies or spheres, if you will, each with its own governing system. We saw the government a few weeks ago when we explored how its authority is a vested one and a limited one by God. We saw how we as citizens should view those in public office and 
how those in public office should govern in light of being accountable to God within their jurisdiction. And then we saw last week the home with its own economy and the personal responsibility inherent in it. Man is the head of the home and that authority being a vested authority from God and wife as a helper as she images God and Christ's work in humanity. And again, both will give an accounting to God, especially the representative of the home, the man. And this week, we look at this sovereign sphere of the church and how the church should function with its government, elders and deacons and congregants. And again, specifically, we're working through the question, what constitutes a church? And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through various texts, and by God's grace, uh, we will come out being able to answer this question biblically. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will jump right in. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, we thank you for how you have sought us and saved us in Christ, Lord, how the spilled blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins, and Lord, that we can, in fact, stand reconciled to you, Lord. We can stand at the day of judgment, as we're going to talk about next week, innocent, not because of ourselves, but solely because of our Savior. And so, Lord, help us this morning as we look through the church which you've instituted, God. Help us to cherish, cherish your church, Lord, as she is the bride of Christ. And Lord, help us to Lord, help us to love how you've laid out for us to operate. And so grant us grace and humility and understanding. And we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can flip over with me because we're going to spend a few minutes in this passage initially, but flip over with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to look particularly at verses 15 to 20. Like I said, this is a bit of a biblical survey, so I'm going to hop around a little bit, but we're going to camp out here for a minute and we're going to see a little bit of overlap from what we examined last week as it relates to Christ being the head. But Paul writing to the church here in Colossae, said this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, about Christ Jesus, he says, and some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18. And he, and you'll recognize this from last week, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. Our confession, the 1689 in paragraph 4 of chapter 26 says it this way, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of his church, in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order of government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. 
We saw last week the Apostle Paul, he gave instructions uh, to wives and to husbands as it related uh, to husbands loving their wives uh, and, 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 and Christ being the head. But here in Colossians chapter 1, we see Paul speaks of Christ even in a more expansive way here. Right? He's, according to Paul, he's the creator, right? He's he's God eternal. He didn't become God, but Christ is God eternal, right? And this eternal creator, the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus, became a man, right? He added to his deity humanity, right? Truly God, truly man, and he reconciled us through his humiliation, through his life, through his death, and his resurrection, that this Christ... This Christ is our head, he's our head, and he's our sustainer, right? He doesn't rule from a distance. He didn't set the world in motion, right? Where we don't subscribe to the God of the deist, we know that God is intimately and intricately involved in our lives and that he's knowable through Christ Jesus, who's our head and who is our sustainer. We were created by him, according to Paul, and we were created for him. We were created for his glory. And Christ is the head of his church. He's not a head of his church, right? He's the head of his church. The New Testament writers, under the inspiration, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, they were concerned about making this glorious truth clear. Right? And this is a glorious truth that we should revel in as Christians. We have a great head in Christ Jesus, right? right? And in showcasing Christ as the head of the church in, in very plain spoken language throughout the New Testament, but even here in Colossians chapter 1, it, it, we can see at least three things from it. This isn't the only things that we can see from it, but it's at least, there's at least three things that we can see from it. First is this, it, it further solidifies, Christ is the head of his church, it further solidifies Christ as being truly man and truly God, right? Only, only, um, only God could be the head of his church, and only uh, a perfect man could be the sacrifice that could wash a bride clean that could then become Christ's bride, the church, right? It solidifies the testimony of Jesus that he's in fact God and that he is in fact truly man, perfect spotless head that makes his bride pure, that makes his bride clean, that makes his bride reconciled and acceptable to uh, the Father. Secondly, it exposes usurpers of his authority, it exposes them in very plain spoken language. And if you're reading along with us, even in the 1689, uh, it, one, if you, 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 you know anything about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, right? You see interactions in which Christ uh, saved some of them and in which Christ rebuked many of them that were functioning as if they were uh, the uh, heads, uh, if you will, and, 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 and in effect usurping God's authority by creating all sorts of man-made traditions and religious practices that they said you must do this in order to be right with God, right? It exposes that. The Apostle Paul in his writing here exposes that. The, uh, the, the drafters of the 1689 uh, applied this. And so if we want to talk about applied theology, if you've been reading along with us and you get to um, this chapter in the Confession and you're like, they just called the Pope the Antichrist. What in the world? I don't know if you noticed that in the Confession, but what we see here is the application of Christ being the head of the church applied in, in, 
in a particular context. And so if you know anything about Roman Catholic theology, you know the doctrine of papal infallibility. That is that the Pope is without sin, that the Pope is a head, that he's uh, uh, of equal standing as it relates to even the authority of scriptures. And and the drafters here uh, are pushing back against that and and even calling him an antichrist or the antichrist because uh, the Pope was being put in a place or assuming a position that only Christ can occupy, right? This is applied theology, This is applied theology. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the only type of theology that matters. And so it exposes, Christ being the head of his church, it exposes people who try to usurp his authority, to try to get in place of what rightly and only belongs to Christ Jesus. Thirdly, it reminds the church, and especially the elders, especially the overseers, of their accountability to Christ and how they worship and in how they evangelize right, to the elders of God's church and whom they must give an account to. Right. And so it reminds the church, Christ being the head, it reminds the church and especially the, the elders of their accountability to Christ and how they worship, how they evangelize, right, how, how, how you function, in other words. Christ is the head of his church and he's the only head of his church. A commitment to Christ as the head it is a defining characteristic of the church. And just according to this passage here in the book of Colossians, we see what sort of perspective that a church gains that acknowledges and operates as Christ being the head. And just a few things here, if you look with me in Colossians, as I kind of just summarize, if you will, or make note of, but a church that, that's committed to Christ being the head, right, will declare him as the image of the invisible God, right? That is to say, the exact and only appropriate representation of the Lord. You see that in the first part of verse 15, right? We, we will have, and let me, let's apply this now, we will have no substitute saviors, right? We will have no substitute saviors. Christ is the head. He's the image of the invisible God. He's eternal God. Secondly, we declare Christ is the firstborn of all creation, That doesn't mean that he was created like some cults say, right? That means that like a firstborn, Christ alone is the heir. He's the heir. Christ is the heir of all that he's created, right? In other words, confessing Christ as the head of the church is confessing that Christ has dominion and Christ has authority and a rightful authority of all things. It's to confess that he's the rightful possessor of everything. Third, we declare Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things when we confess him as the head. Verses 16 and 17. I don't mention this already, but God is knowable and he's near to us through Christ Jesus. Fourth, we declare him, and and again, we'll see this a a little bit more, Lord willing, next week, but we we declare Christ, who's our head, as, as the hope of our bodily resurrection. Verse 18, he's the hope of our bodily resurrection, Christ Jesus alone. Fifth, we declare him as truly God. We've seen that, verse 19. And in verse 20, we declare him as the reconciler. We declare him as as the one who made peace by the blood of his cross. He's, He's the only one sufficient enough to have made peace by the blood of his cross. What a wonderful head we have in Christ Jesus, right? 
and, and it's an everlasting head. He's an unchanging head. He doesn't change the rules on us from one day to the next. He's consistent. Right? He's clear. He's stable. He's steadfast. He's our anchor. That's our head, Christ Jesus. Now look with me, and we're going to look at this more in the coming weeks, because I, I want to just, I guess, focus, drill in a little bit more on how our confessing Christ as head necessitates a particular commitment to Him, right? It necessitates, and again, I'm trying to illustrate that a little bit with the way the confession calls out the Pope of the day when they were trying to reform the Catholic Church, but... Um, But turn with me to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, particularly verses 18 to 20, because because this this uh, gives us a snapshot, if you will, into the type of commitment that that confessing Christ as our head necessitates of us. And if you didn't know, the Great Commission starts with verse 18, not verse 19. Verse 19 doesn't make sense unless we know that Christ has authority. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ has authority in heaven, he has authority on earth. Again, we'll look at this more in the coming weeks. So in light of that, in light of Christ's authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All right, after Christ came in his incarnation, all right, after uh, his great humiliation and his taking of flesh upon himself and taking our sins upon himself, after his going to the cross and having God's wrath poured out on him, after conquering death, hell, and the grave, and after he's in his glorified state with power and authority, but right before he ascends to the right hand of God, Christ gives these parting words to his disciples. And in this familiar command, we can see more tangibly what a commitment to Christ as the head of his church looks like. And again, we'll see this more in the coming weeks, but look at the text. A commitment to Christ as the head means that we worship and we labor in His authority. We worship and we labor in His authority. We don't worship and labor in our own authority. We can't make up what devotion to Christ looks like. We're not just kind of willy-nilly pulling it out of the sky, just making this thing up as we go along. Christ who has authority makes up what devotion to Him looks like. It means also that our faith should be public. And, and the public nature of our faith, and I've mentioned this several times over the course of our, our series together, but uh, the public nature of our faith should flow from a commitment to Christ as we see in the Scripture. Right? There's no such thing as a privatized faith that's foreign to the Scripture. We're to have a public faith. Right? Third, we see from this that, that we make disciples not of ourselves, but of Him. We shouldn't be remotely interested in trying to make more of us. We want to make disciples of Christ Jesus. Right? We, want, we want to point, we don't want to, de- we don't want to produce some sort of codependent relationship, some sort of needy, uh, fake disciple that, that, that's um, looking to us as Savior. We, we should be uh, consistently pointing people 
to the only Savior, to the only head of the church, Christ Jesus, that should be the form that our discipleship takes. We make disciples of Christ, not disciples of ourselves, which again necessitates a sort of discipleship plan, not one that we just make up on our own authority. And it means, as well, according to Matthew 28, we give those disciples a Trinitarian baptism, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? We as a church confess that we worship a triune God, right? It means also, according to Matthew 28, that we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded, right? It, mean, it means that, that we're to be, and again, I've said this before, we're to be committed to the whole counsel of God's word. The Great Commission is not fulfilled by just evangelizing. We're called to teach disciples to obey God's word in light of Christ's authority, that's a part of the Great Commission, an often neglected part of the Great Commission. Right? We worship, we labor in light of Christ's promise, right? his parting words that he'll be with us, spiritually with us, until the end of the age, when he returns physically to be with us for all time. Right? Yeah. So that's the... It's point number one. <clears throat> Secondly, if you're taking notes, there's, there's a difference between invisible and visible church. The invisible and visible church. And it, again, we can see this in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. See this in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. And, and we saw this last week as we looked at Paul's instructions regarding marriage. He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Right? What is he the head of? Remind me, what, what is Christ the head of? He's the head of his church here, right? Of course, we saw this a moment ago, but we need to take care not to miss what, what's being said in this passage, right? Christ is the head of a church that he's washed pure, right? Christ is the head of the church, one in which he's cleansed. Christ is the head of a bride without spot or without wrinkle, right? This is a pure church. This is a true church, one that can't fall away, one that won't be abandoned by Christ. And this historically has been referred to as the invisible church, or maybe you've heard of the phrase universal church, and it's made up of every Christian in the past, now, and in the future. And this is another way of saying that Christ is the head, he is wed to his church, which is made up only of believers. The confession says it this way, the, the Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all, paragraph 1 of chapter 26. That, that is the, the invisible church that, that we would capitalize with a capital C, right? The universal church, capital C. But we also have the visible church, which is lowercase c, okay? And the visible church is what we see this side of eternity. It's the makeup of our gathered assemblies, what we're doing here this morning, what the Lord has commanded us to do. The local church, the visible church is made up of professing believers, some of which are genuine and some which are not. 
Alrighty, and, and we see throughout Scripture visible church expressions, local church expressions. Acts chapter 11, for instance, verses 25 and 26, as it relates to, uh, to, to Barnabas and, 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 and Saul, uh, who's, who's also known as Paul. Uh, but Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him into Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And Barnabas discipled Paul, discipled Saul at Antioch, where the professing believers were they gathered. Or if we were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, we see the apostle Paul address the church in Corinth. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's a distinction. There's Christians who in every place call on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's those Christians that are gathered at Corinth, right? Some of which uh, are making a profession that will prove by their eventual denunciation that they were never a part of the church to begin with, and some which by God's grace and Holy Spirit will continue to preserve, right? to the church of God that's in Corinth. Right? And for those of us, again, familiar with both 1st first, first and 2nd Corinthians, we should know that that was a, a dysfunctional church. Right? There was a son there that was sleeping with his dad's wife, I think his stepmom, and, and, and there was instructions there given that that, that uh, son was to be excommunicated from the church. But I give you this to say that visible church membership is based on a profession of faith, right? A baptism into the community of faith. And only those who are truly saved, whose hearts have been captivated by Christ, will persevere. This is what the preacher to the Hebrews means in chapter 6 when he speaks of folks falling away. Those who abandon their profession of faith in their conduct or in their denunciation of the tenets of the gospel and never return right? Never return. We see Peter abandon Christ, right? At Christ's arrest and crucifixion. And then we see Christ restore Peter, right? Peter belonged to Christ, but we see Judas, who also betrayed Christ, who, yes, he felt guilty at the end, but he tried to earn his own salvation through works. He wasn't redeemed by Christ, was never a part of Christ's flock to begin with. 1689 says this about the visible church, all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation are and may be called visible church. And of such ought all particular con- congregations to be constituted. Right? Particular congregations, in other words, are to be made up of those who profess the faith of the gospel Those who are obedient to the Lord and those who do not destroy their profession of faith by foundational theological errors or by their conduct. Now, pair this with my message a few weeks ago on the assurance of faith. Jesus Christ keeps those that are his. And so the question that we need to ask is, are we actively repenting of sin? Are we resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation? If that describes you this morning, rest in that. Rest in that. Right? This side of eternity, your, your profession will never be all that it ought to be. 
right? You're, you're never going to definitively conquer all the sin in your life, but you can have assurance as you express a tender, warm, affection, heart toward Christ Jesus. As we continue to answer what's a church, we see that a biblical church, three, has church government. Right? There's, a sh- there's shepherding, there's accountability, and there's care. There's shepherding, accountability, and care. The, the, the visible church, the local church, is made up of, of uh, the congregation, which also includes leaders. And, and here we see there are two official and current officers in the church. The first is elders, which we also see uh, the word, uh, interchangeable words in there, bishop, overseers, pastors, right? Those are elders. Those are considered elders in the church. And then we see deacons. We see deacons as well. Just a few passages for us on this. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Again, Paul and Timothy greeting the church of Philippi here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers. Okay, again, that word elders, pastors, and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we, he addresses, Paul here, two offices that constitute church government, elders and deacons. And we see earlier, even in Paul's ministry in Acts, he instructs the Ephesian elders, the elders at the church of Ephesus, on how they're to minister at the church. He says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Again, he's speaking to the elders at Ephesus here before he leaves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Okay, again, instructions to the elders. Pay attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock, to the members, to the congregants. Got excited there. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, and we, again, this, this parallels well with Colossians 1, with his own blood. There is an accountability piece here, and there's a shepherding piece here. Paul tells the elders that the Holy Spirit has entrusted them to oversee God's church, which was purchased with the blood of Christ. Those are weighty words, aren't they? Here at Deer Park Fellowship, and again, this is a little bit just so you can see some of the philosophy here. We we have four elders here, and I, and I put a, um, a a handout in your worship guide in your bulletin so that you can kind of put faces with the names. But we have four elders here: myself, Scott Imbleton, Scott Shearer, and Doug Hazel, also known as Scotts and Doug. Uh, but our charge, according to God's word, is to recognize that it's the Holy Spirit has, who has put us in place as, as overseers and that we're going to give an account to the Lord on how we shepherd. We're going to give an account to God for the quality of our shepherding. And as elder team, we're to be devoted, first and foremost, to guarding the good deposit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that's to be men that are committed to the Word in, in both faith and in practice. This means that we got to rebuke false teaching, and we have to bring clarity to what's true. It means that we lead uh, the church by God's grace through our own repentance, and that we're responsible to help those of you who are members walk in repentance and faith. Right? Biblical churches have, have historically practiced what I like to call... Um, a seeking ministry, 
All right, it, it, it's been called church discipline, but I like seeking ministry better than the phrase church discipline. And the reason why I like the phrase seeking ministry is because in the, its main passage in Matthew chapter 18, we see it, uh, it laid out and it comes right after Jesus gives the parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one wayward sheep. Right? Biblical confrontation uh, is the mechanism by which we can continue the Lord's seeking ministry, right? We're to lovingly and humbly confront those in habitual unrepentant sin because it's going to lead to their destruction, because it stains the testimony of Christ, because it stains the testimony of God's church, His bride, and it spreads. It spreads. So when confrontations met with genuine repentance, praise God, there's restoration, right? There may be a feast of sorts, like the parable of the, the lost son, the prodigal son, right? When it's met with hostility, it is in effect calling God a liar, which is also included in that first John passage we read at our confession of sin portion, which is what we do. We call God a liar when we say that we have no sin, That means that we're called by God to declare a person as an unbeliever and not allow him or her to function as if they're a believer in good standing at God's church. We work within Matthew 18, verses 15 and 20. We work within 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. We're to guard the good deposit. We're also, as elders, we're to be men of integrity. We're to be men of integrity, good managers of our household, self-controlled, warm, hospitable, approachable, right? First, First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We're not to be domineering or greedy or power-hungry or manipulative. All right, these are it's what we're held accountable to by God. We're chiefly to be men of prayer. Look at this briefly toward the end of the sermon this morning, Colossians 4, 2. Right? We're to be men of prayer. So we protect our doctrine, we protect the, the preaching of the Word, we protect our Lord's Day public worship, right? It means that we're also accessible to our people. It means that we take responsibility for the safety of our children and the safety of our church. It means that we steward the finances of our church as those who must give an account. It means that we do these things in a dependent, daily, prayerful posture upon the Lord. And we do this living in transparency with the people that we're called to shepherd, you, our Deer Park Fellowship family. We're to be anchored in Christ. We're to be anchored in His charge to us on how we're to steward what He's entrusted to us. Namely, again, the very body of Christ. Now flip quickly with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And for time's sake, I, I want to encourage you to just put a bookmark there and read this passage a little bit later. And I'm just going to give you a bit of a summary on it because this is where uh, many scholars, church historians, believe that we see the office of deacon instituted here in Acts chapter 6. Right there, the Lord is giving an increasing number to the church of God after the ascension of Christ, after Pentecost. And we see the disciples discern, the apostles particularly, discern the need to have organizations surrounding the various felt needs, if you will, of God's people. And so in this passage, it has to do with benevolence needs and widow care, but it's not limited to that uh, as it's kind of a servant of the church sort of role. It it extends to all forms of hospitality and service. The disciples who were eldering knew that their primary calling was prayer and the ministry of the word, the administration of the church, but they also knew that felt needs could not go unaddressed. 
right? So they ordained deacons. And the word for deacon, as we saw two weeks ago in how uh, Paul described governing figures, uh, the Greek word there is, uh, means servant, right? To deacon is to serve. And we see uh, really that instituted, I think, in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. And, and uh, we'll see uh, elder and deacon qualification roles more in our First Timothy series here. But here at Deer Park Fellowship, we have deacons alongside of the elders of the church. And these deacons were selected based on what they've been doing all along, which is serving the body of Christ faithfully. The particular deacons that you see in the handout there have been faithfully and with integrity serving God's church for a long time. And I would encourage you to to get to know them and even ask them how you can volunteer in the ministries that they help to sustain here at Deer Park Fellowship. Get to know them. But these various serve areas, they really do help us function as a local church so that people can be helped and so that they can be positioned, which is significant, they could be positioned to be conformed more into the image of Christ Jesus by his word. I love the way that John Piper says that we should care about all suffering. We should care about, in other words, felt needs. We should especially, though, care about eternal suffering, right? Which we know that those who are not reconciled to Christ will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. And so, Deaconing helps to position people through meeting of various felt needs so that we can meet their biggest need, which is that they need to be reconciled by God in Christ Jesus. And so those two things work together and, Lord willing, help to produce a healthy local church. And then finally, I want us to see that a defining marker, and and, and the reason I put this at the end is because I'm going to spend a lot of time on this in two weeks, but a defining marker of what makes a church a church is the Word of God. The Word of God is central in a healthy local church. The Word of God is central in a healthy local church. Now, how do we see the Word as central? Right? And, and again, I, the way that I view public worship, and I hope that we can all grow in this together, is that our public commitment to Christ on the Lord's Day should fuel our private commitment to Christ, and it should fuel our public uh, uh, commitment to Christ in, in other uh, areas of our lives, namely being ambassadors for Christ as we look to fulfill the Great Commission. And so a public commitment to Christ starts here as we assemble each and every Lord's Day. But we see first and foremost that, or we should see that the, the, uh, the, pre- the preaching should be driven and anchored by the Word, Right? It should be anchored and driven by the Word. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, and uh, just in the, the few verses um, uh, uh, before the passage I read to you a moment ago, he says, I testify to you this day, Paul says, I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Right? Verse 26 and 27 of Acts 20. All right, that's Again, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders whom he's been equipping. Right? Paul tells them he's innocent of the blood of all, which is quite a preposterous claim. Right? The souls of those he ministered to, their blood is no longer on his hands, is what he's telling the elders there. And why is this? Because the Apostle Paul, according to this passage, preached the whole counsel of God's word. He preached the whole counsel of God's word. We see Paul in 2 Timothy, charged Timothy, who he sent as a pastor to the church of Ephesus. I charge you in the presence, uh, this is chapter 4, the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach 
the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season isn't meaning there like when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. It's, it's when the word of God is favorable in society and when the word of God is not favorable in society. Timothy was charged to preach the word. And what did that look like? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right, at Deer Park Fellowship, by God's grace, the aim of your elders should be to promote what God tells us we need. We should promote what God tells us that we need. And, and what we need may or may not be what we often want because of our sin nature. Right? We need the whole counsel of God's word. That's what makes a whole Christian. We need it proclaimed. So by God's grace, we're committed to preaching is, is especially we're going to be, you're going to see this in October. We're committed to preaching book by book and verse by verse. We want to, we want to become, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sturdy Christians for the glory of God in a society that's increasingly hostile to Him. And the, and the way in which God does that is He sanctifies us on His sovereign timetable through His means, which is the Word of God. It's the word of God, right? So we should, as elders, promote the whole counsel of God's word, and we as Christians should be committed to the whole counsel. As congregants, as members, be committed and operate according to it. Secondly, we see word informed. We should have word informed and spirit empowered prayer. Word informed and spirit empowered prayer. I mentioned this briefly briefly a moment ago. Colossians four two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We have to be a praying church, and prayer can so often, and to my shame, be the very thing that I neglect in my life. But the Apostle Paul here says that we have to be steadfast, we have to be watchful, we have to be thankful in our praying life. To be steadfast is to be persistent, to be watchful is to be alert. It's to know the plagues of your own heart, to know the needs of the congregation. It's to know the needs of our nation. It's to know the needs of our world, as the Lord allows. We're to be thankful. We're to give thanks. This word in in Greek is where we get the word Eucharist from. Thankful translated here is where we get the word Eucharist from. And and what what is the Eucharist? It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. We have much to be thankful for in our prayers and in our lives because of the redemptive work of Christ. Right? How, how could we possibly become embittered toward God? How could we possibly become embittered toward God's people when our prayers have a thankful posture? Right? Right, well, that's why one of the reasons why, again, a public commitment to the Lord's Day, by God's grace, trickles into our daily lives, we want to make prayer a central priority of what we do when we gather each and every Lord's Day. While we have a confession of sin, that's why we pray several times in the service. We want to have word-informed singing, word-centered singing. We want our singing to declare the, the uh, redemptive doctrines of the Bible. Right? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says to the church here. How does the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, right? 
Singing is important. We should sing loudly because it's a way in which the Lord uh, increases joy in a downcast soul. It's the way that the Lord helps to remind us through melody of who we are in Christ Jesus. It's the way that the Word of God can dwell in us richly. We're admonishing. I love when Daniel prays about the corporate nature of our singing. We're declaring these truths to one another. We're singing to God, but we're singing to one another, saying, remember who you are in Christ. So our singing should be grounded by doctrine, which in turn should increase our assurance of faith. Then we have, and again, I'll spend more time on this in the coming weeks, but we have sacraments or what is also, also called ordinances. We have the Lord's Supper. We have baptism, right? I read Matthew 28 a minute ago, but these, these sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are the two sacraments that were instituted for the church of God to be taken as we're gathered together, as we discern what Christ has done for us, right? When we see someone get baptized on the Lord's Day, man, we should not only celebrate what God's doing in them, but we should remember our own baptism. We should remember that we're identified with our Savior. When we come to the table each and every Lord's Day at the conclusion of our service, I like to think of it as the pinnacle of our service as we declare that we're in Christ and Christ is in us and that it's sheer grace that that has occurred. We share an everlasting union with Christ. It's important, and there's something that's spiritually going on through all of this. As we sing, as we pray, as we hear the preaching of the Word, and as we observe the sacraments of the ordinance, Christ is building us. He's doing something spiritually in us. The Word of God doesn't return void. And so when we come and we're fighting through distraction and suffering and circumstances and our knees are wobbly and our hearts ridden with depression and anxiety, we can come knowing even then God is doing something to us as we faithfully engage as God's church even each and every Lord's Day and we can be confident that that has a trickle-down effect into our everyday lives. The Lord God is strengthening you, His bride, His church. So a few things for us, a few takeaways, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into a time of the Lord's Supper. These are in your worship guide, your bullets, and first, Christ is the head of his church. And therefore, our public worship, our private worship, and our public witness should be driven by our submission to him, by our submitting to the sufficient scriptures. Secondly, we're commanded by God to be a part of the visible church. We'll see this more later, Hebrews 10.25. This means that we should regularly gather for public worship. We should submit ourselves to church government by becoming members of a local church. And we should live in accountability with other Christians in the context of our local church. Third, elders are accountable to God to honor Him and how they lead the church and promote the gospel. Therefore, Deer Park Fellowship is led by a plurality of elders, not one elder. And the church should feel comfortable approaching the elders about decisions made in the church. Elders walk and govern in the light, not in the darkness. And fourth, word, prayer, sacrament is the primary way God builds his church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had to gather together, Lord. And God, we ask and we trust that you are doing just that. You're, you're building your church. And Lord, you hold us in the palm of your hand. And so as we move in now, the time of 
taking these elements, Lord, that Christ instituted in the New Testament, Lord. We trust that Christ is spiritually present with us. We trust that your Holy Spirit is strengthening us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.